Welcome to Fick Focus, where Bloomberg Intelligence fixed income, credit currency, and commodity strategists and analysts discuss their short and long-term views on debt markets and issuers. Now, here's the Bloomberg Intelligence Fick Research Team. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the next episode of the Credit Crunch podcast, part of the FICC Focus Umbrella. This is Mahesh Bimalingam, your host, Chief European Credit Strategist at BI, Bloomberg Intelligence. Bloomberg Intelligence is the research arm of Bloomberg LP, arguably the largest research franchise on the street. And for all data quoted in the podcast, please go to BISTRTE, our dashboard on the terminal. So today we are we have a, you know, my old mate from my career at uh, Barclays, Boris Oakliar, who is a global head of liquid credit at Aries Asset Management. Uh, he's, he's specialized in leverage finance, but nowadays he does all of credit. Welcome, Boris. Thank you very much. Hope we'll have a fun time. So Always. Always. So I think a topical question to start with would be, you know, we've had a bit of a correction. We've had a pretty decent amount of sell-off uh, without any sort of singular event triggering it. Like in 2022, we had Putin, you know, starting the sell-off. But we've had sort of an organic sell-off in July. So where do you think we are? Do you think there is more to go in the correction or do you think we are, you know, close to being done? Well, I think that we're in a period of time where we are seeing government bonds, we're seeing cash actually as a competitor to what has normally been a yieldless environment from the riskless end of the spectrum. And uh, as we saw yields move up in, in loans, high yield and other credit products, uh, there was you know certainly greater focus on those products, greater focus on investment in them. As they started reaching pretty wide yields and wide spreads and government bonds are starting to move up and the riskless rate is starting to move up behind, People are still a little, not only a little bit spoiled for choice now, uh, but they also have an option in terms of where to move capital from a riskless perspective. So the front end of the year has actually been pretty profitable. Let's not forget that last year, 2022, is pretty difficult from a return profile perspective. People have made a fair amount of money back over the course of 2023. And there is always that uh, consideration when you get to the summer period that you know, you might want to start easing off and crystallizing some of those returns and start thinking about where the future is going to go. We were seeing a little more concern about recession hitting different parts of the world, different parts of the economy, uh, being under pressure, inflationary pressures, whether they were coming off fast enough, whether they're not coming off fast enough, and ultimately what central banks will do to respond to those. So this has just given people a bit of a moment of pause. They've seen spreads tighten in. Spreads, obviously, as a, as a metric for risk, generally speaking, or OAS, is something that people watch very carefully. But we've also been through a long period of time where yields were very low and spreads were almost a proxy for yield. Now, because the riskless rate is up, yield is in the broader economy again as well. And as a result, spreads are starting to tighten, but they're tightening to levels that make people take a moment of pause and just try and understand what the direction of travel is going to be for the rest of the year. So as you said, we did see some sell-off coming through. 
I think that's a little bit of profit taking. It's a bit of uh, portfolio rotation, you know, considering what's going to happen for the rest of this year. Uh, And uh, I think there's definitely nice pockets of opportunity that are still available throughout the market. You have spreads and high yield in the mid 400s, low to mid 400s, depending on the region. You have spreads in the loan market in the mid 500s still across Europe and the U.S., you know, adding that to the base rates, these are still very strong yields and very attractive yields for very, you know, very strong companies that are in those constituents. So just to put some numbers to this correction, you know, every podcast we do mention, you know, where they are on a normalized spread basis. So investment grade and high yield in Europe have now moved to about uh, two-thirds standard deviation rich from about 1.2 standard deviation rich thanks to the correction. So they're still in rich territory, but they're not rich as before. So are we in a territory where we can say there's going to be no more correction? Not yet, but definitely they are not as ripe for correction as prior. I think that's right. Uh, I think that that's absolutely correct. Um, but again, I think that the debate that we continue to see ongoing is this spread versus yield debate. Yep. What is enough for an investor? But that, I guess if I can, that'll that brings us to another sort of another topic, if I can ask you a question, and, and what's the view that you're getting from from credit investors, given the number of conversations that you've been having with people? Yeah, so yeah, for uh, for our listeners who are familiar with you know, our podcast and our research, we know that we publish our uh, survey and for survey for survey results, as well as a podcast on the, on the back of that. So for the third quarter, uh, if you look at the results, uh, investors definitely believe that high yield is rich, but it is less rich. Um, investors do believe that uh, returns are go- likely going to be positive for the third quarter. Uh, because the survey is quarterly, of course. Mm-hmm. So they do believe that returns will be positive and they have actually put a lot of cash to use. So the cash in uh, portfolios hit an all-time high of 7.1% and that has dropped to 4.9% as we were heading into uh, Q3. Now, it'll be interesting to see what the cash positioning is as we get to Q4. Mm. They also said uh, they do prefer, uh, you know, it used to be rampant preference for investment grade in Q1, Q2. That has changed to like flat between high yield and investment grade. Not much differentiation. But a big uh, favor in terms of uh, European high yield versus U.S. high yield. Uh, they believe that European high yield has sold off a lot more compared to U.S. high yield. Any thoughts on that? This is aggregate client opinion. <laughs> the, the Europe versus U.S. debate. Well, look, there, there are always uh, a variety of reasons as to what is driving the return profile between those regions. Uh, Europe has been, generally speaking, a lower growth environment for a long time. Uh, rates have been more benign. When you think about sort of absolute rate movements, let's keep in mind that Europe was very negative on the front end for quite some time. So the magnitude or the scope in terms of the move has been actually pretty big in terms of the underlying rates. But the absolute impact on companies and on the economies has not been as pronounced just because you're starting from a negative standpoint and you're moving into a into a positive standpoint. So um, bumping along sideways is always strong. It's always strong for credit. 
uh, the constituents within the market and the representation of of sectors and cyclical sectors and consumer facing sectors is not as is not as great as we see in the U.S. market. And so, as a result, Europe you know tends to tends to gather favor from that point point of view, and also. So you are saying, muddle through suits Europe, <laughs> because we are specialists in that. I, I was I was always noting with my colleagues um, around the world that U.S. economic growth is always targeting kind of three plus percent historically. Yeah. European economic growth, because you have this spread of economies, etc., one to two percent has sort of been the band that's been living in, and for cash flow products and for credit products. that suits us perfectly fine yeah. that's exactly what you need now on that topic let's continue the discussion so what do you think is i mean given the differences in terms of economic outlook cyclicality you know us tends to be a lot more cyclical than us but also the legal regime in the us is very different from here you know being american you're quite familiar that they just they're happy to go to delaware right yes. here we can't go to delaware So what is how different is your default outlook for Europe relative to the US because the US tends to make all these nasty headlines you know even on Bloomberg our Bloomberg news folks tend to write like you know there's seven defaults on a day that is not going to happen in Europe that's my view but what's your take well the european markets uh, do traffic in a lot of different jurisdictions but the the documentation is still typically new york law particularly in the high yield market there's a lot of uk based documentation in the loan market and europe has been quick to respond or not not super quick in a historical perspective but as of late has been quick to respond in terms of creating um schemes of arrangement creating out of court ability to preserve as much value or more value than they were historically doing i say especially before the financial crisis um and as a result of that we've seen default rates continue to stay relatively benign it's also uh, a function of the fact that rates have been so low for so long that that's certainly a contribution and that companies have because uh, because of the different forms of capital that are available to companies now in Europe as well as in the US they can pull more levers to find liquidity to protect the going concern and so we think that all of those have contributed to default rates remaining relatively benign now we are from what we are seeing we see the default rates are are pretty low from a historical context um they tend to generally trend lower in europe than the us also just because the there's a bit more conservatism in terms of structuring the transactions um the high yield market is up in quality from a ratings perspective versus the us so there's a there's a number of contributing factors to that um and it's also as i mentioned before the the index composition is a little bit different you don't have as much of a prominence of retail as much of a prominence of energy which move the volatility in the us around a bit more than they do in in europe so all that being said we will you know, we do believe that we will see mean reversion if nothing else i mean defaults have to go up from near zero or sub 1 um we think that because rates have generally moved up that's going to put a little bit more burden on companies and we are going to see the defaults start to gravitate up but it will be more pronounced in the US just because of the just the sheer scale and size of that market and the the industry context that we were talking about before uh, in in terms of in terms of defaults though 
I mean, you have all the data and you do lots of analysis. So what are the sorts of default rates that you see both in high yield and the loan markets, uh, I guess, particularly in Europe, but then, then more broadly speaking, be interested yeah. to hear. A very interesting question. Now, you already mentioned that uh, the indices tend to be quite different. So I want to delve deeper into that. So uh, in our research, we track and we publish index eligible defaults uh, in high yield and in leverage loans. So the thing is, in in, a, in portfolios which are all benchmarked, which is the case with majority of high yield portfolios, you tend not to have these uh, very small, tiny companies, which may be part of uh, you know default counts at the rating agencies, but not part of the indices. So the index default rate tends to be even lower than what you mentioned for Europe. So just to give right. numbers, the 12-month default rate for Euro high yield index right now is 0.23%, right? We've had two defaults after nearly two years. 0.23%. percent The 2-3 okay. is the important part. <laughs> <laughs> so, so two names, one in each quarter this year, and that's about it really. Now, if you look at candidates, you know, we do publish that as well in terms of potential candidates going forward. Forget the names. There are about four names, triple C minus today. Even if all of them default right now, today, we're going to end up with like 1.2, 1.3%. It's very difficult to see all these, you know, doomsday forecasts that some of these uh, press come up with. Oh, yeah, there's a default wave and so on. I mean, to even call it a wave, you need to be like 3 to 4% plus. I really can't see that. So that's in high yield. The loan market, obviously, the default rates are slightly higher. But even there, if I look at trailing 12-month loan defaults as a ratio of loans outstanding, uh, we are talking about 0.5%. So the loan market is having more defaults, more than double. No additional decimal points there. Just No additional. Yeah, it is 0.5 exact, huh, by the way. Uh, <laughs> so, I, so the loan market is essentially telling you, yes, there is probably going to be a take-up in high yield. But even there, you know, even if you figure out that loans are going to be a percent, percent and a half more, I can't see a peak loan default rate like two and a half percent and a high yield default rate one and a half percent. I don't disagree with that. I think another thing that we have paid attention to when thinking about defaults is what drives defaults now in a largely covenant loan, covenant light loan environment and a high yield bond environment, which is also just incurrence covenants. And it's an, abil it's not, it's an inability to repay whether you're paying interest, whether you're paying uh, maturities. And so as a result of that, um, you want to look at those dynamics and maturities continue to be pushed out in the loan market. It's through a lot of amend and extend activity, which has been prominently featuring this year, although the primary market is starting to pick up again and is expected to pick up pretty significantly in the fall. And in the high yield market, there is also a very low amount that's coming up for maturity over the next two, two and a half years. So that does give companies a lot of breathing room, especially in the high yield market where they are still relying on some of the low rates that they had, that they had fixed in their portfolios or sorry, in their capital structures uh, back when rates were low. Yeah. Now that brings us to, if you want to talk about, you know, forward views on, uh, you know, credit availability and, uh, you know, supply and so on. Before that, we need to get a good idea of what we think about rates. So, Central bank rate expectations. Are you in the Fed pause camp? Are you in the Fed cut camp? 
Uh, the, the Fed cut camp always seemed a bit ambitious without something really systemic or cataclysmic happening to the market in very short order. Which is not happening. Which clearly. doesn't seem to be the case, uh, uh, especially as we're talking about defaults as we are, as we're talking about liquidity, some availability of capital that's still out there in various forms. And so um, with that much preservation of, uh, of, of value at the forefront of what investors are looking for, uh, it doesn't really seem like it's something that the, the, the Fed is going to be pulling out of their bag anytime soon. The other consideration is that central banks need to achieve their target of getting sort of sub 3% on the inflation rate. Going to 2% yep. inflation um, is is still a long way away, yep. and it does require more tools. Now, does it mean that the Fed needs to keep lifting rates for a long time? It doesn't. Uh, it needs the impact of what they've done thus far just to continue working through the, the market environment. So you're in the longer pause camp. That's Well, I think that there's probably there's probably still some hiking that can happen, maybe another hike that can come through. But then I think that they leave it for some time, yeah. about 12, 18 months. So and for the benefit of our listeners, so the, what the market is pricing in is there is a probability of a hike. A full hike is not priced in, but a cut is priced, a full cut is priced in by May 2024, which I personally, I also believe is too ambitious by the market. I think, I mean, if I remember correctly, that was before the end of the year, not that long ago in terms of what the market was pricing in. Yes. So now we just moved to May. Right. Yeah. So that brings us to the ECB. Any uh, any view on the ECB rates? Well, I, I think that they have been trying to follow suit in terms of moving rates up. I think that they will need to continue to do so. As I mentioned, if you want to get inflation more broadly under control, then you are going to need to not only show that you're willing to continue bumping rates up, but that you're willing to hold them there for a medium term period of time in order to make sure that uh, make sure that the impact of that is felt. Right. Uh, so just for the benefit of our listeners, once again, the ECB story, the market is pricing in one more rate hike and then a cut late into 2024. So, I mean, it's more of a you need to wait and see the impact of the rate hike. I think the less said, less said about the BOE, the better, even though both of us are sitting in London. Three hikes, <laughs> three more hikes forecast, and I think uh, you can forget about a rate cut anytime soon. I, I don't disagree <laughs> with that. It's, uh, it's a very difficult challenge for the Bank of England, just given, I mean, core inflation is coming down. Things are moving in the right direction, but we're moving into winter. Uh, there's still some geopolitical tensions that are driving up. Or, or that have an impact on energy prices, food prices. And so you know, we will see how that is felt, but they, they don't seem to be in any position to even consider a cut for, for a long time. Yeah. So, I mean, given uh, you know, from that perspective, though, I guess, what do you think in terms of availability of, uh, of credit, supply, um, just how are you thinking about the world and, and how are you thinking about maybe the yield curve and, and the implications on credit performance? Yeah. So... You know, we've, we've covered front-end rates, which are essentially, you know, decided by the central bank. Uh, but the long end and the curve is essentially market-driven. And what the story is right now, the yield curve is inverted and the market is pricing in uh, effectively a flat curve movement. So the curve shape is more or less staying where it is. And the whole thing is coming down in parallel, both in the U.S. 
and in Europe. So in the US, they are pricing in about 40 basis points tighter. Uh, so the 10-year and the 2-year both are coming down by 40. Uh, there are, of course, more ambitious rate strategy forecasts and there are less ambitious rate strategy forecasts. But the unanimous call seems to be that the entire curve is coming down. Right. Right. And that and in Europe also, it's very similar. The entire curve is coming down, but by about 30 basis points. So it clearly seems like a bullish yield curve move is being priced in, which in general, if it is a slow moving yield curve move down, is positive for credit. You agree? I do agree that that is ultimately a positive for credit because it's creates the implication of a lot of capital appreciation, especially at the front end. Correct. Front end of the curve. And Fixed given, income flows will benefit credit flows. That's right. Yeah. And when you see the level of convexity that's available within the high yield market at the moment, given that it's trading kind of 87, 88 cents. And when you think about that versus the duration in the market, it, there's actually a lot of positive, uh, there's a lot of positive catalysts that can, uh, that can result in, in good things for credit investment. Um, to the extent that that happens. I think the bigger question is that what's what's it going to take then to see the more normalized curve where the front end moves way, way in yeah, and the I, long end stays out, I think, as opposed to the flattening or the, I mean, a bull curve does create some flattening, but then, you know, what about getting back to the normalized curve? I think, I think, the, I think the normalized curve is a while away because <laughs> as you, as we've discussed Today, right, in the in the front in the in initial sections, you said you know uncertainty in terms of uh, hitting the inflation target, uncertainty in terms of uh, the economy chugging at the ideal rate going forward. All these determine real yields. Uh, so real yields, yes, they have gone up, uh, but inflation has also gone up, and we are still pricing in a higher for longer. Right. Right. In a higher for longer scenario, the curve doesn't normalize soon. You need cuts to be priced in. And without cuts being priced in, the two stems doesn't doesn't steepen, which is what we right. we want a yield curve steepening, which is very positive for credit, of course, uh, because credit is generally more front ended. But that's going to be a while. Um, both sides, Europe and US. Yes. Uh, when the when the Fed is going into a cut cycle. Yes, then you will see curve normalizing. So I'm not surprised that rate strategy forecasts on the street are saying, yes, the whole thing will move down, but the curve won't, right. no curve won't normalize. So that brings us to what are what is your take? I mean, given your background in syndicate, your favorite topic, what do you think <laughs> of what do you think of credit supply, both investment grade, high yield, and leverage loan supply? Do you think? I mean, we've had. I mean, I'll I'll put in numbers later on, but in terms of feel, do you believe that we're going to see more in the remaining part of 2023 and uh, early 2024? Because it's not been great, well, to be honest. Uh, yeah, no, it's it's definitely been anemic by historic standards. Um, you know, the high yield market is outpacing last year, although last year was not the strongest year in terms of supply, but it's it's there or thereabouts in terms of looking at sort of the three-year average at this point. So it's um, it's actually performing better. The loan market is definitely anemic uh, in terms of new issuance. There's been a lot of amend and extend that's been driving volumes within the loan market, but there hasn't been a lot of wholesale refinancing. And then, of course, the, the couple of other factors that we keep in mind uh, when thinking about both markets is that 
M&A volumes have generally been a lot lower than they have been in the past. Um, there's been a bit of a valuation gap between seller expectations and buyer expectations, especially with the new cost of capital that that credit has uh, returned to, which is really the the old cost of capital sort of yeah, big crisis. Yeah, we'll, we'll talk about um, that actually. So, so with with that in mind, and, and looking at the demand side of the equation a little bit too, CLO formation has been okay, but it's been relatively slow this year as well. Uh, trying to keep the the arbitrage attractive has been you know, a bit of a difficult dynamic for those that are those that are looking to form CLOs and manage that capital. So as a result, um, we think that we're going to see a pickup as we get toward the end of the year, and that we should start seeing that unlock a bit more in 2024 because there are rumblings. There's a lot of capital available. There's a lot of private equity money that's been raised that's sitting on the sidelines. There's a lot of private capital on the credit side as well that's available uh, that can help move transactions forward. And then once the machine starts to turn, you start to see the activity follow suit. You start to see a little bit of credit spread tightening. You start to see the prices move up in these markets. That's when you get to that sweet spot where things start working again. And we don't think that that's too far away, uh, but it's you know it's still taking us time to get through the marketplace. Right. So here we would like to clarify, you know, syndicate versus research. Syndicate loves gross supply. And in gross supply terms, yes, we are sort of at the average or slightly below. But the minute you look at net supply, it is quite <laughs> dreadful. It is one of the worst years on record. And remember, Putin happened last year. Yes. The consequences are being borne out this year. So investment grade, net supply, index eligible net supply, 57 billion this year up to July, basically, uh, versus about 49 billion last year. So just about, yeah. But last year itself wasn't wasn't a great right. year for investment grade. But high yield is a story you wouldn't like to know. <laughs> Minus 28 billion net supply. It's negative. Index has shrunk. Right. Last year, same period, minus 13. So last year, everybody wrote like it is the probably the most dreadful year, etc., etc. This year is worse. For right. an investor, it is worse. For a bank or for a syndicate, yes, growth has been okay. But the net has been terrible. Leverage loans, the net supply is about. So you take off refinancings and repricings. Yeah. So we are talking net new loan supply effectively is about 20 billion, which is also about 20, 20 to 25 percent less than last year. So this year's net supply has not been great. So from an investor perspective, you're not having enough product, which, by the way, perversely helps us because. Money is flowing into credit, but That's there isn't. Right. But there is enough. But there isn't enough to invest in. So, for example, in July, despite all the mess that we've had in terms of this correction and so on, you know, without a crisis, mm -hmm. funds flowed at the rate of about one point five percent of AUM, both high yield and investment grade. So, market down, funds were flowing in, right? Because and. I'm, I'm hoping that given that spreads have corrected and valuations have corrected, that will stand us in good stead going forward because, you know, we provide the carry. There isn't enough supply net. Right. Because from, an, from a portfolio perspective, all you care is net, not, the, not gross. Right. Well, you also need to take into consideration um, the rising stars versus fallen angels. I mean, the we'll next come movement to that. has yes. been moving this around This includes that, bit. by the way. Yeah. And this, so the, 
from the high yield market perspective we've lost correct we've been losing some we've lost the, so there hasn't the been for all the doom and gloom we haven't had enough fallen angels but there's the the raft of rising stars continues at the rate of like at, at least one a month from right. the high yield index to the ig so which means every month it is negative net supply negative net supply negative net supply so that brings us to uh loans versus high yield <laughs> so you know i mean your favorite topic do you believe that yeah i think you will invest in both as well yes we do so we, what is your bias right now loans or high yield and why well it, it really depends on what you're looking to do with the capital that you're putting to work i mean i think very clearly put you're getting more yields in the loan markets right now than you are in the high yield markets so yeah. there's a lot to be said for that to the extent that you believe that rates and base rates are going to continue moving up even a little bit that they're going to be sitting around for a little while um that you think there's some malaise in the marketplace which is keeping those spreads a little bit wider than they have been over the long term then there's a lot of value there's a lot of there's a lot of value in that coupon the the downside though being that the moment that those markets improve and strengthen yes you'll get some capital appreciation but there's not the call protection that you have on the high yield side and as a result you, know, you can be subject to repricings and and spread tightening but overall well that's not coming anytime soon i don't believe <laughs> that that's coming anytime soon but these you're always in the eye of the storm in these markets True. uh i you know 18 months ago 24 months ago people were saying that you know single b's in the mid 300s was just where we were going to be forever we were going to stay lower for longer remember everybody yeah. talking about that and that base you know we were not going to see inflation for a long time all of that has changed and now all the discussion is that we're never going to move back in the other direction and it'll be here before you know it but it's still going to be delivering very strong yield very good value you still have about 4 5 points of convexity in the loan market so there is still some capital appreciation opportunity on the high yield side you know looking at europe versus the us you have you're up in quality on a ratings perspective your duration is lower which is great but they're still both sort of 87 88 cents in terms of where those where those prices sit so there's a lot of convexity but there's not a lot of refinancing coming up for any time soon mm. and what's interesting too like thinking back on that ratings upgrade discussion that we had a moment ago and going into where are rates going to go um over the near to medium term it's a little hard to square the fact that we have more rising stars than fallen angels but that the world is coming apart you know so so we do need to maybe the world is not coming apart <laughs> that, that, isn't it or at least not at the pace that that the markets are expecting yeah credit generally is very good at pricing crisis as we know we yes. both we both have been there when we were at barclays in the 2007 2008 crisis credit generally forecast crisis much better so you know we predict, we we knew when the crossover went to 1000 we knew when the default rate went to like 14% it's not happening now it doesn't so, seem to be the case so if now so credit is telling you that things are not as bad as the press writes about maybe in the rest of the markets need to listen i would like to dig deeper into this uh, you know the loans versus high yield real well but before that i want to add some color to this uh, funding uh, question when we discuss supply so just to put some numbers to it the overall coupon in investment grade is less than the yields by about 2.2% so which means if you want to issue new bonds in investment grade you need to give 2.2% extra premium than your old bond right in high yield 
it is about 3.2%. So this is one major reason why you're not seeing enough net supply because new bonds are a lot more expensive than any old bonds. Remember in good old days when the, I mean, it's been less for like 10 years, right? right? We are used to that environment. So particularly in high yield rampant calls, right? You're not seeing any calls. That's right. Because who is going to call now? So that is one reason why net supply is very low. Now, hitting in this loan versus high yield railway, just to put some numbers to what Boris has said, loan yields now, thanks to record Eurobar, is about 9.1%. And high yield is at 6.7%. It looks like an absolute no-brainer, isn't it? 2.4% gap. Uh, this includes the OAD, by the way. Originally, right. should discount. Yeah, yeah. A client actually, we keep publishing these numbers and keep saying this conclusion. A client asked, hey, the loan market actually is, a, is actually low rated. So there is a lot more single B in loan market than high yield. How do you adjust for rating and then tell me the numbers? And the adjusted numbers are, if you do single B loans versus single B high yield, loans still lead high yield by 1.1% in yield and about 1% in spread. So uh, the case is still there for loans to be a you know dominant investment case unless we are in a super hunky-dory environment where you're seeing refis. If, re if refis are happening, which means the world is in a very good place, isn't it? That's right. I mean, it, yes, then the world is in a very... Very good place. It's in a very good place because it means a couple of different things. I mean, if there is an M&A happening that's creating a refinancing, then that is happening because you have a strong credit. Yeah. Right. So that's yeah. that's obviously a good thing. Yeah. And if refinancing is happening just because you're in an attractive rate environment, then yeah. that also is a reflection of things being in a very good place economically. Yeah. And so so both of those I think are are very good points. I mean touching on your thing about a, the the hundred basis points extra for loans versus high yield. Same rating. In terms of um, in terms of spread. That that's a you know that's something that uh, we definitely think is an attractive um, is an attractive profile within the marketplace, but if you're if you're looking to go you know up in ratings a little bit, you know getting double Bs in the four hundreds is actually something that is you know been somewhat unheard of without mm. real real volatility mm. for a very long period of time, and and so it all comes down to you know what are your objectives in terms of in Got terms it. of your investment parameters. Got That's it. why it's a little hard if you're just looking at current yields. Loans are definitely where you want to be. Yeah, I you, think if you have a little patience and you can play that convexity a little bit more, you think there's some event-driven spots that you can play in the high yield market. It's a great place to be picking up some gains right now. Yeah, but the the one big difference between the loan and high yield markets in Europe is the double B bucket dominates high yield, the single B bucket dominates leverage loan. So. That's why I think overall market calls need to be adjusted for individual rating pockets. I mean, the single B loan market, because it has more data, I'm able to quote the C, the double B loan spreads are a bit patchy. Is the, the same logic holds, yep. uh, but do I trust the data as much as I do for the single Bs? Probably not. Hmm. Well, and the, and the single Bs are, we just have to keep in mind too, that the loan market, the single Bs are all first lien, first secured paper. Correct. So the recoveries... Even if something bad happens, recoveries are generally a lot higher than they would be in unsecured high yields. So it's another dynamic to be considering. Now, on that, on that, I have a follow-up question. In the loan market, particularly in single base, there are quite a few loan-only names yes. with no bonds. 
there do you do you believe that the recoveries are going to be as high you know typical 60% type that's that that's is a, a long standing debate and i think it depends on which market you're speaking about mm. in the us market the loan, the loan only structures have been questioned quite a bit because obviously they're not as big companies they don't have as many layers within the capital structure they don't have as much protection of value so there's there's a debate that that'll probably be lower in the european market going back to your original question about jurisdictions and complexity yeah having a single tranche capital structure has become a lot more commonplace yeah and especially you couple that with covenant light structures and you saw during exactly during covid it gave people the opportunity actually to focus on the going concern managing their business to make sure they get to the other side and if you do run into a difficult spot you're dealing with one creditor class you're not dealing like we saw in 2008 with multiple layers of a cap structure right. fighting each other covenants tripping up restructuring advisors lawyers all getting involved and really bleeding this a lot of the value out this is a very interesting take actually so i don't think it's as bad, bad as the headline the european market at least that's very Maybe interesting more so in the us so for our listeners i think uh, this one this view from boris that the simplicity of the structure and the you know less number of counterparties to deal with should probably help recovery rates in terms of negotiation and so on now that's right last section uh, boris before we go to rapid fire with you <laughs> so are you uh, are you a clo investor um well at aries we invest in clos and then we also manage, manage clos, CLOs. So, now so. that brings me to i mean given that we have we've talked in depth about the loan market you can't not talk about clos clos for the for the benefit of our listeners clos especially in down markets have have accounted for about 80 to 90% of net loan supply this year they are running at about 50 to 60% of net loan supply why because the clo arb has been dropping uh, full arb used to be about 350 bips it did it dropped to about 250 bips it is starting to go up i mean i have a theory that the the clo aaa investors tend to be too harsh they they the they, they tend not to accept lower spreads as quickly as what is happening in the underlying markets and as a result initially you tend to see the up go down and then the tron spreads rally and then the up goes up so this is what we are seeing at the overall market level what do you feel well the clo formation hasn't been as bad as people have, have been talking but it's um it's certainly not been as strong as it has the last couple of years it is all about the arb so it's all yep. about where the collateral pricing is versus where the liabilities are uh, the liabilities have been stubbornly high but then you know as a result of that uh, it, it is a reflection of some of the negativity that we're seeing in the market and some of the concern and caution so it does make sense as the collateral starts to move up in terms of price or tighten and spread the liabilities will then follow and you said it perfectly it, it it's always a little bit of a cat and mouse game in terms Correct. of the way that that works and then you're looking for a sweet spot because ultimately you're trying to solve for every investor in the capital stack at the same time yeah and you know finding that comfort zone for everybody comes and goes uh you know equity investors have to be comfortable that they're getting a very fair value in terms of the yep. IRR that they're expecting from what they see in the market and if AAA investors are feeling very cautious they're going to want as much spread as they can to guard against that yeah now 
when you have underlying base rates where they are and those triple A's are floating, the spread that they're getting on a historical basis is extremely, you know, it's extremely attractive. So you have been seeing a lot more interest and a lot more diversity in terms of the investors going into that end of the capital structure. Yeah. And then that ultimately, we believe, will create you know, more availability of demand for formation as time moves forward. Um, the ARB is moving in the right direction. Correct. I mean, collateral is moving up. Liabilities are coming down. Uh, so you will probably see a follow-on in terms of formation um, over the over the near, near to medium Who term. Who do you think help. is the bottleneck now? Is it the AAA guy or is it the equity guy? Things like that will get me shot by my investors. <laughs> so I'm not sure I'm going to answer that one. But I think that it always, I think it's just always a moving target. Um, it's interesting, Mesh, whenever, whenever a CLO manager goes out to the market to try and form a CLO, it's always that similar thing. It's, it's a whack-a-mole game where there's always one tranche that's a little difficult at one particular point yeah. in time. And that's always moving around just depending on the day of the week. So um, it's hard to say where the bottleneck is right now. Yeah. Uh, data seems to say that this year, in terms of that ARB dropping, is probably because of AAA guys not budging. As loan spreads kept rallying and the AAA spreads don't seem to come down at the same rate as a result of compressed. But we'll see. Now, the last... They, they seem to be coming in. They seem to be coming yes. So yes, yes. It's starting to follow. So in, in, in last month or so, it's been not bad. Right. Yeah. So my last question to you before rapid fire is one is one section of credit where we sitting in BI have almost no visibility, which is private lending and credit. Right. Because we are all public. Right. So you know, shed some light on what you're seeing in terms of private credit, private lending in Europe and also maybe in the US. I mean, if you can, you don't need to put numbers, but are you are you directly investing in uh, private, for example, in all this sort of color will be very useful for our listeners. Sure. Well, the, the liquid credit team is focused on high yield bonds, leverage loans, multi-asset credit products. So we don't invest directly in private credit, but Aries as a firm has a very large private credit investment arm, uh, both in Europe and the US. Um, activity has been slower than what we have historically seen in Europe, but, uh, but it is still strong. We're getting a lot of inquiry that's coming through and we're still putting uh, we're still able to be putting money to work, which is which is obviously great for for everybody involved. Um, the general health of that side of the market is actually holding up very well. Um, you know, it's interesting to think that people compare, or they say the public market's not holding up that well. But at the same time, we've been talking about default rates are not that not really existent. Um, the spreads aren't crazy but in, wide, but, but there's in private, all this, you can't even track. Right. If there is a default, right? No, yeah. no, that's, I mean, that's right. You, you Look, you have seen, because the, the companies just generally are smaller, but you have seen a growth in large companies accessing the private credit market, which, which helps that end of the market in terms of what those stats look like. Um, there is a, a little bit of an increase in activity or, or watches, I think, just from the market in general, just like there is in the public market. So there, they're not too dissimilar in terms of what the health looks like. Um, there are more private credit con like competitors in the U.S. market. Mm. So I think you're seeing more competition these days in the U.S. Yep. than you are in Europe. Uh, but what it ultimately is for, for the borrower and for the investors in these funds, 
it's actually a fantastic advent of these marketplaces to have this liquidity and this capital available. And this is something we, we just discussed uh, previously, but if you rewound 15, 20, 30, 40 years, or even longer, it was it was banks. Correct. And banks invest, were and, the private and, lenders. And, right? and investment grade companies could go to the capital markets. Correct. Yeah, then the high yield market started to open up. That that spurred some growth. Then banks syndicated loans. Loan investors you know, created a larger bank market, a larger high yield market. This created more options for investors. We saw this in the early 2000s coming in Europe yeah. in terms of giving them opportunities. Bank balance sheets continue to shrink. Private credit has been stepping in. And then you even have alternative credit players that are lending against real assets, lending against cash flows and and, and recurring cash streams. Um, all of this gives a borrower a lot more opportunity to focus on their going concern, to manage their capital structure in a more efficient way, and to find opportunity in times when it otherwise might not have been available. I mean, you could have someone very interested in doing an acquisition, and if, you know, 40 years ago, they went to their banks and they said, no, that was it. Yeah. If they say, look, I don't mind paying more because I think I'm getting a great price and a great company and I can do something really special here. Yeah. So I'm, I'm going to go borrow from someone that'll give me that capital at a fair rate. And in a couple of years time, if the markets are back, then I'll, I'll refinance it. Then I'll worry about yep. that then. But I, I just see a spectacular opportunity that I don't want to miss. And now people have those opportunities available so, as borrowers are concerned. So we can see that in the era of, uh, you know, Basel 3 and now Basel 4 and severe capital restriction on the banks, private credit is filling in, uh, you know, the investor requirements to some extent. Last question before we move on is, do the terms tend to be more stringent? When I say terms, terms in terms of uh, how much you need to pay, and also any restrictions in terms of covenants, whatever. Does it tend to be more stringent than the public markets or easier? That all comes down to moments in time. I think generally speaking, there is a premium associated with private capital versus versus right. public capital. Um, and because you're typically negotiating with a, with a single source of that capital, the documentation is more tailored and tends to be a little bit more stringent than what you would see in the public markets. Is it like 25 or 50 or, or 100? It, it just, it, it really is very credit specific. It's hard right. to put a finger exactly on what that premium is. And also the point in time. I mean, there were times when the market Correct. dislocates yes. and public is wider. And so it, it just really right. depends on, on what specifically we're speaking about. So that brings us to the rapid fire section of this podcast. <laughs> so you got about... Two, three seconds to answer each question. Okay. Yeah. So the first question, returns for the rest of the year, positive, negative, or near zero? Third quarter, I think, will be good. Uh, depends on some geopolitics as well as weather and, and some other variables that go into the fourth quarter. But I think on balance, it'll be, it'll be more than close to zero on the positive side. Okay. Investment grade or high yield? Actually, let's start with let's start with let's start with credit or rates. Oh wow, um, that's actually a really good question. I mean, rates are pretty, you know, rates are pretty volatile. They're definitely not my expertise um, in terms of from the investor profile perspective. But I uh, like I'm always going to err with credit because I think that a lot of babies get thrown out with the bathwater. And so, if you're if you're focused on strong credit selection, that that's a better place to be putting your money right now. Right. 
I expected that answer. So <laughs> investment grade or high yield? Well, I, you're probably going to expect a lot of these yep. answers then. But uh, again, I, I think that I would probably be focusing on high yield. Um, just shortening shortening down duration, taking advantage of the wider spreads than, than what we've seen for some time. Um, just the power of the coupon, the power of that yield and the convexity. It just it feels like a better place to be. Oh, so that brings us to the trickiest question. Loans or high yield? <laughs> loans and high yield. Uh, can I say that they're all God's children and that we love yeah, them? They're equally, God's children. Yeah, they're all God's children. You have to pick one. <laughs> um, I think over the over the near term, the yield associated with loans is just really hard to ignore. Uh, Europe, it's over 9%. The U.S., over 10%. I mean, those are just really powerful numbers. Uh, that convexity that you see in high yield is is really attractive, but at the moment, I'd probably favor loans a little bit. And lastly, Europe or US in credit? Again, uh, it's a tough one to answer. The, the US seems to be taming inflation better. It has a very strong, uh, a strong economy, although you know, everyone's very focused on, on soft landing. Um, Europe, just generally speaking, from my perspective, just given the diversity of the jurisdictions and your ability to be a little bit more laser focused on your credit selection and your opportunity selection, if you understand all the nuances within those different markets, I think it's a, I think it's a great place to invest, which is in loans and high yield, by the way, it's outperformed the U.S., I think, 10 or 11 of the last 15 years. So um, I just I still think that Europe is going to is going to be strong for the rest of the year or stronger for the rest of the year. So uh, for our listeners and for our readers of our research, as you are familiar, we agree with all those views. Uh, <laughs> although we have a stronger conviction on positive returns for the rest of the year, we did publish that there will be a correction. Correction has happened. Maybe a bit more correction, but for the rest of the year, we have positive returns. We love high yield. We love loans over high yield. And we, of course, like uh, Europe over uh, US. So that concludes our uh, Credit Crunch podcast. Thank you, Boris. Thank you very much for having me. And for the purpose of our listeners, please visit BISTRTE for all loan, CLO, high yield uh, data. You know, we, we have all supply, you know, tests on CLO, defaults, uh, come whatever you want, uh, data and research on the dashboard. BISTRTE. And we'll be back with you next month with our next podcast. Thank you for listening.